Well, the last pagan emperor of Rome was Flavius Claudius Julianus. He died in 364 AD, and his dying words were revealing. They became famous. He said, you have conquered Galilean. Julian's words were a reference to Jesus and an admission of defeat. The emperor realized that in just 300 years, Christianity had overwhelmed paganism and had prevailed as the religion of the Roman Empire. Pagan Rome had become Christian Rome. Who would have thought that today, in the early years of the 21st century, we would be witnessing a revival of sorts of ancient Roman paganism? It's making a comeback. You see, paganism is a religious-sounding attempt to tap into and manipulate the power of God without any allegiance to God. It's amoral. It requires no love or loyalty. And it's formulaic. There's no such thing as orthodoxy or truth or right belief. You just plug in A, B, and C and you get out X, Y, and Z. Today, paganism goes by the title, The New Age. It claims all kinds of spiritual techniques, astrology and crystals and pyramid power and positivity and channeling and meditation. Paganism is the promise of a special knowledge apart from Christianity in the pages of Scripture. Remember the wise words of King Solomon? He said in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. In his fiction, C.S. Lewis has the senior demon, Screwtape, instructing his apprentice, Wormwood, on the means of temptation. Screwtape tells the rookie devil, he says, Old error in new dress is ever error nonetheless. And that is so true when we come to the book of Colossians. We're going to learn tonight that much of the modern spirituality that gets propagated today by Oprah and the like sounds identical to the false doctrine that threatened the church in Colossae. You see, New Age is really nothing new at all. The New Age is simply a repackaging of an old lie. Well, chapter 1 begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Both men were together when Paul wrote this letter. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is Paul's familiar greeting. We're aware of it by now. We've seen it over and over in his letters, grace and peace, the bookends of the gospel. Colossae was a small town in what is today western Turkey. It was about 80 miles upriver from Ephesus. The book of Colossians is the only one of Paul's letters that we have today that was written to people that he had never visited. The church in Colossae was probably a byproduct of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. One of the converts was a man from Colossae named Epaphras. After he became a Christian, Epaphras, he went home to start a church. And the Colossians flourished in their faith until false doctrine infiltrated their thinking and placed a chokehold on their newfound faith. Pastor Epaphras, himself a new Christian, realized that he needed help. And so he traveled 900 miles to the city of Rome to consult with Paul. Thus, it was from a Roman prison that Paul sat down and he penned a defense for Orthodox Christianity and for the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
In this letter, Paul will dissect the Colossian heresy, a form of paganism that will later be known as Gnosticism. He took this letter and he raced home to Colossae to douse the wildfire, but it would be another three centuries before the heresy was fully extinguished. But before Paul douses any fires, he first wants to warm some hearts. And so in verse 3 he writes, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now here's the greatest gift that you can give at Christmas time or at any other time. If you want to give me a gift, this is a good idea. This is top on my list, the gift of prayer. Paul says he's always praying for these folks. And Paul had been praying for the Colossians since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Notice here their faith, hope, and love. One commentator refers to faith, hope, and love as apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. I mean, these are the marks of an authentic relationship with God. Faith, hope, and love. Now, These Colossians, they were flirting with dangerous doctrine. But understand, this didn't nullify the good and godly in these people. Paul saw problems, but he also saw potential. There was faith here. There was hope here. There was love here. The Apostle Paul is writing to correct the Colossians, but first he acknowledges what they're doing right. That's so important. Parents realize this very early on, that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And that's the strategy Paul will follow with the Colossians. Notice verse 6. He says, Of which you heard, talking about the gospel, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. This is a stunning statement. That the gospel had come to all the world. Understand the year was 62 AD. Only 30 years had elapsed since Jesus' resurrection. And understand, this was before motorized travel, before the printing press, the radio, film, TV, the internet. Jesus had left the gospel in the hands of a few fishermen in an upper room, inside the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, what kind of progress would you have expected? Well, amazingly, Paul says that in those brief 30 years, the gospel had gone out into all the world. How amazing. Three short decades saw the gospel spread throughout the whole Mediterranean world. And there were really two reasons for its spread. First, The ability of the Holy Spirit. Never underestimate the power of God. And second, the availability of the early Christians. And you know what? When God's ability and man's availability come together, there is no limit to what can be accomplished. Well, the gospel was on the move. And according to verse 6, everywhere it went, it was bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Colossae was not unique. Wherever believers had embraced God's grace, spiritual fruit had resulted. Verse 9, And for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, did not cease to pray for you. And again, Paul is praying for these people. The greatest gift you can give 
is the gift of prayer. But notice how he prays for them. He says, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. This is a powerful prayer. But it's interesting, this is not the way we usually pray. How ironic is that? You know, we pray for someone's health and happiness. We pray for their cash and their comfort. We focus on their physical state and their material welfare, whereas Paul prays for their spiritual condition. Notice again this prayer. He prays not for thrills, but to know God's will. Not to walk safely, but to walk worthy. Not for fluff, but for fruit. Not for an increase in income, but for an increase in insight. Not for possessions, but for power. If you pray for me, I hope you mimic this prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians. And also pray for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Pray that we can endure difficulty joyfully. Not begrudgingly, but joyfully with a smile on our face. You know, long-suffering is patience in difficult places. Patience is endurance of difficult people, which is harder. I think both can be taxing. Difficult places and difficult people. Paul says, let's pray for both. Let's pray for endurance. While giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. I love this. Did you know God has qualified you? He's qualified me in Christ Jesus. We've met all the requirements to inherit the riches of heaven. They've come to us simply by being in Christ through faith. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Think of a conveyor belt. He's conveyed us. The word conveyed was used of a victorious general when he deported his captives. Well, in a sense, you and I have been captured by Christ. And we have been conveyed. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness now to the kingdom of His love. We've been conquered by Jesus and now we've been made His. And then verse 14 tells us, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. There are Christian organizations today that work in the South Sudan. They entered the slave markets and they purchased people out of those slave markets in order to set them free. It's very dangerous work. But can you think of a more profitable, or more loving thing to do? Obviously, these missionaries have great courage. They, they put much at stake to accomplish uh, this redemption, this deliverance. And you ask yourself, why would they take such a risk? Well, there's only one reason. This is what Jesus has done for them. And this is what Jesus has done for you. He's entered the spiritual slave market. And he's dug deep into his pockets. He laid down his own life. It cost him his own blood. To purchase you and me. And why has he purchased us? Why has he forgiven us? To set us free. To give us a new life. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. 
And then in verse 15, Paul specifically targets this heresy that was brewing in Colossae. Here is one of the most majestic descriptions of the deity of Jesus we have in all the Bible. Paul states of our Lord, He is the image of the invisible God. Now here, Paul expounds truth while he hammers heresy. Each of his following points now in this letter are going to shoot down a different pagan Gnostic assertion. And to appreciate what Paul is teaching, you need to understand what he's fighting. You see, the Gnostics, they believed in dualism. They believed that both good and evil are eternal. That the material world we live in is evil, while the spiritual world is good. Thus, since God is spirit and since God is holy, He would never handle anything material or evil. And this made God's creation a difficult procedure. Since the Creator couldn't touch anything tangible, He had to act by proxy. And so He sent out emanations or personifications of Himself to do the dirty work of creation. These reverberations or revelations of God were like a rock splashing into a lake and creating ripples. Each ripple was a little less divine than the one before it until finally a ripple evolved way down the line that didn't even know God. It was completely evil and thus it could create the world. You see, the Gnostics believed that the nature of God or the pleroma, as they called it, the fullness, the divine essence, that which makes God God, was actually chopped up like fine pepper and then sprinkled out over the entire religious spectrum. Thus, there was a little bit of God in everything. Jesus was just one of many of these emanations, many of these ripples that had reverberated from God. Jesus, along with other gods and goddesses and angels and even wise teachers, could reveal you something about God. You see, in Gnosticism, there was nothing unique about Jesus. He was just one of many links to God. Sound familiar? That God is in all and all is in God? This is the New Age line that we hear so much of today. In Gnostic belief, God could be found anywhere in anything. It was an ancient version of today's new age. Under Gnosticism, because spirit is good and matter is evil, the Son of God could never have created the world. In fact, Jesus could have never inhabited a physical body. Thus, Gnosticism opposed the humanity of Jesus. Now, no one living at the time could deny that Jesus had lived. There was just too much evidence. But, but they came up with other stories. They, they called him a ghost. They said that he was a phantom. They came up, they concocted these fanciful tales that he would walk the beach and yet not leave any footprints in the sand because he really wasn't material. He, wasn't a, he didn't have a physical body. Jesus, or John, writing of Jesus, had the Gnostics in mind. When he wrote in his epistle in 1 John, he, he opened the epistle, that which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and catch this, and our hands have handled concerning the word of God. We grabbed, we touched him, we know he was real. He had a real human body. Jesus came in the flesh, John touched him, he said. That was 
a response to this, this heresy that had developed. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, this became the litmus test for Orthodox Christianity. John writes directly to refute Gnosticism when he says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And of course, this heresy despised the crucifixion. The Gnostics refused to believe that anything physical could affect their salvation. Thus, they denied the atoning work of our Lord Jesus, the work of His blood. They denied the blood of Christ. And that's why Paul, in the preceding verse, had made the point of saying, in Christ we have redemption through His blood. The blood was needed. It was the physical blood that atones for our sin. You see, for the Gnostics, salvation was the result of spiritual enlightenment. Gnostic or gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. Thus, to the Gnostics in Colossae, Jesus was just a starting point for spiritual discovery. Like today's New Agers, they failed to accept Jesus as Lord. They failed to accept His supremacy and His sufficiency. The Gnostics looked for God in all the wrong places. But notice, Paul here, he calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. The Greek term for image means exact representation. Not just alike in form, but in substance. Paul is saying that, wait a minute, Jesus was fully God in both nature and in character. Though he was also a man, he wasn't just a weaker reflection of God. He was the full blaze of God's glory. In form and in substance, Jesus was God. He was the image of the invisible God. Verse 15, he adds, And he was the firstborn over all creation. The chief Gnostic theologian of the third century was a heretic named Arius. He used this verse to infer that Jesus was a created being, not truly divine. In fact, today's Jehovah's Witnesses echo the Arian heresy. But the early church fathers, headed by Athanasius, correctly explained that the biblical term firstborn refers primarily to status, not so much to birth order. There are a couple of verses that are helpful here. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 calls Jacob the firstborn. Even though he was born after Esau. In Jeremiah 31 verse 9, Ephraim is called firstborn over his older brother Manasseh. Biblically speaking, you see, firstborn doesn't refer to birth order as much as it does a title of authority and preeminence. As the firstborn over all creation, Jesus is not part of God's creation, but He is over creation. He is sovereign. He is the chief. He is the CEO of God's creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. A holy God had no problem handling the stuff of creation. His son Jesus made all things. And I love the next line. All things were created through him and for him. Have you ever wondered, why was I created? (laughs) Why do I exist? Here we're told, you were created through Jesus and for Jesus. 
If I drove my truck across Daytona Beach into the ocean, I wouldn't get very far, would I? For my truck was not made for underwater travel. If I drove my truck off of a cliff, I'd crash because my truck was not made for in-air flight. But on the freeway, my truck does just fine. Why? Because that's what it was designed to do. And likewise, you were not designed to simply work and play and party and earn and spend and save and sleep and eat and toil and try and sweat and cry and eventually die. You were designed for more than that, friend. You were created for Jesus. And you will never know real fulfillment apart from a relationship with Him. All things were created through Him and for Him. And then verse 17 tells us, And Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, but He is its sustainer. He holds all things together. Basic laws of physics state that like charges repel. And yet, in the nucleus of every single atom, we find particles of like charges, or protons, held together, forming the nucleus of that atom. Scientists have their theories, but no one really knows what makes the proton stick. Here, though, Paul reveals to us the atomic glue, the nuclear glue. What is it? It's Jesus He's the one who holds all things together. By Him, all things consist. Did you know that Jesus is holding all things together right now? And not just atomically or molecularly. Jesus is holding my life together. Trust me. I tell people, man, I've been married for 32 years, but I never would have made it without Jesus. He's what holds Kathy and I together. He's what's holding our family together. He's what's holding my sanity together and my schedule together and my health together. He is the one who sustains me. And as far as this universe is concerned, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that one day, Jesus is going to show you how much He's holding all things together because He's going to let go. Just like that. He's just going to let go of every nucleus, of every atom in all of the universe, and we're told what will happen. The elements will melt with fervent heat. When Jesus loosens His grip on creation, the physical universe will instantly vaporize. It will totally disintegrate. After which God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And He, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and the little boy from Nain were all resurrected from the dead. But the resurrection of Jesus was unique. They all were resurrected to die again. But Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And this is what makes Jesus the firstborn from the dead. That in all things, He may have the preeminence. You see, Jesus is not just one way to God. He's not just a ripple emanating out from the original splash. No, Jesus is God. Jesus is the rock that created the splash. And He needs to be treated as such. That He 
may have the preeminence. Here's what you should do tonight. You should look on the top shelf of your life. And if there is anything there other than Jesus, you should just knock it right off. Just knock it off. It doesn't belong there. You need to clean off the top shelf and make certain nothing is crowding or rivaling your allegiance to Jesus. Well, verse 19 tells us, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. This word fullness, or its Greek counterpart, pleroma, was the theological term that the Gnostics used for the essence or for the totality of God. What makes God, God. This is the pleroma. They said that the fullness of God hadn't been sprinkled out over, or Paul said it hasn't been sprinkled out over all of creation. Paul says that's not what's happened. Oh no, the pleroma has, is to be found in one place. In other words, God has put all of his eggs of revelation in one basket. God has taken the totality of himself. All that is God, he has put it all in one place. In a person named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the sum of all that God is. The knowledge of God isn't to be found under some rock somewhere or at the end of a new age rainbow. No, all the knowledge of God is found in one location, in one person, and His name is Jesus. And by Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Jesus, God has reconciled all things to Himself. Every month, I reconcile my bank statement to make sure that my records synchronize with the bank's records. And likewise, in Christ, God balances our spiritual checkbook. The cross paid your debt. All that you owed, it paid. It even added righteousness where you were short. In essence, it reconciled you to God. Never again will you be found with insufficient funds if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. By Him, He has reconciled all things to Himself. And then in verse 21, And you... Now all things is one thing. But now He gets specific. You, He's reconciled. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, that death on the cross... To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith. In Christ, God considers me holy and blameless and above reproach. If, you know, yes, there is an if. Did you know your spiritual status, your right standing with God is conditional? You see, it's up to us to not only have faith, but according to Paul, to continue in our faith. If you continue in the faith. You see, faith is not just a one-time profession. It's an attitude in which we must continue. Faith isn't a sign on the dotted line, contractual kind of thing. No, the Bible speaks of faith more as a plant. You put the seed in the ground and then you water it and you weed it and you watch it grow. 
And as long as you're, you're caring for it, it grows and flourishes. But the moment you begin to neglect it, it starts to die. You see, I used to be once staunchly, once saved, always saved. You know, you made a commitment as a child and that's all you had to worry about. You could walk off, do whatever you wanted thereafter and, and everything would be fine. But that's not what Paul says right here. He says, you've been reconciled to God if you continue in your faith. You can't ignore the obvious meaning of verse 21. I mean, when you take this verse and others like it at face value, you've got to acknowledge what it says. Saving faith is not just a faith that believes once and then stops. It's a faith that keeps on believing. It's a faith that perseveres. Verse 23 teaches us to be, that to be saved, we have to continue in our faith. And he adds, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Hey, please, make sure your faith is grounded. Make sure you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. We need to anchor our faith. We need to guard against drifting. A faith that drifts, a faith that turns its back on Christ. Eventually drifts out of the harbor. A faith that drifts is a faith that doesn't save. We need to anchor our faith. Be rooted and grounded. Verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body which is the church. Now here's a verse that's greatly debated. Roman Catholics use this verse to support the idea of purgatory. That somehow the sufferings of Christ were not sufficient for our salvation. And thus we should add to the cross. To this and all of the New Testament. To this I and all of the New Testament vehemently disagree. We're protesting. That's why we're called Protestants. Colossians 2 verse 10 tells us that we are complete in Christ. That the work of Christ on the cross was sufficient once and for all, complete for our reconciliation, for our atonement. That's not what he means here. He's not saying that that we have to do something to add to the sufferings of Christ. Here's my take on verse 24. You recall when Paul met Jesus on his way to persecute the Christians there in Damascus? Remember what the Lord said to Paul? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was hassling the church, but Jesus had taken it personally, hadn't he? And you see, in that sense, Jesus still suffers. Not physically, not in any atoning way, but he suffers in empathy with his church. When you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. Persecution continues tonight all around the globe, and we help fill up or bear with the sufferings of Christ when we show concern for His persecuted church. That's what I think verse 24 means. Paul speaks of the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the Word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to His saints. The church is the unveiling of a mystery. I mean, that God could take sinners and turn us into His righteousness. What what an incredible, incredible revelation. And he says, to them, or to us, God willed to make known 
What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? Notice this. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here is the great mystery of Christianity. Here is Christianity's most stunning characteristic. This is what sets it apart from every other ideology. Christianity is not a philosophy that you learn. It's not a set of rules that you obey. It is an invasion of the human soul. That's what Christianity is. Christ comes to live in me. Christianity is not imitation, it's impartation. You see, I can watch LeBron James dunk a basketball from now until the day I die, and I'm not going to be able to do it myself. I just don't have the spring, man. White men can't jump. I'm not going to become like LeBron through careful imitation. But what if you took the spring in LeBron's legs and put that spring in my legs? Impartation. What if you gave me something of LeBron? At the very least, I'd be dominating the 50 and over league. Well, likewise... It's impossible for me to consistently live the Christian life by simple imitation. If I don't get something from God, if I don't have it in me, it's hard for me to live it out. And this is why Christianity is more than imitation. No, Christ comes and He lives in me. His Spirit is imparted to me. It's Christ in me. This is the hope of glory. And then Paul adds in verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word perfect means mature. We'll never be flawless in character, but we can become mature in our faith. And it's to this end that Paul works. He says, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul wants to see these Colossians grow. And so chapter 2, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, you remember Colossae and Laodicea were sister cities. And Paul will later suggest that this letter be read to the saints in Laodicea and the letter he writes to them be read to the church in Colossae. But Paul had been to neither city. Yet Paul had a big heart. It was full of concern even for people that he had never met like the Colossians and the Laodiceans. And he hopes for the believers in both of these cities He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's words in verse 3 were a direct assault on the heresy in Colossae. You see, the Gnostics claimed that they were the secret keepers of the mysteries of the universe. This was how they, this was salvation to the Gnostics. It was understanding the hidden knowledge. But Paul says that the treasures of divine knowledge were unfolded not in their hidden ways, not in their mysticism or their legalism or their paganism, but God revealed his wisdom 
in Christ Jesus. At the cross is where we learn of God and His mercies and the depth of His grace. X marks the spot. It's at the cross. It's not in Eastern mysticism. It's not in Jewish legalism. It's not in Roman paganism. God has revealed the treasures of divine knowledge in the person of Jesus Christ. William Randolph Hearst, he was one of the richest men of his day. And he had this vast, expensive art collection. Well, one day, he was thumbing through a gallery magazine when he ran across a masterpiece. He considered this piece exquisite. He coveted this particular painting. Hearst sent out his aide, armed with millions of dollars, to locate the painting and to purchase it and to add it to his collection. Well, after an extensive search, his aide returned with the painting. Hearst was elated. He asked, he said, how much did this cost us? To which the aide replied, nothing. We found it in our own warehouse. Hearst had the art all along, but he didn't realize it. And this is our problem. So it is with God's treasures of knowledge and wisdom in Christ You have all of God's riches in reach. You have all His treasure, all His riches in reach right this second. If you're in Christ Jesus. Yet in Colossae, these false teachers were intimidating the Christians. The Gnostics had told the believers that they lacked divine resources. Paul says, no way. In Christ, we lack nothing. All we ever need in the eyes of God, we find in Christ. He says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Oh, these heretics, they could use big words. They could use sophisticated words and arguments. Oh, they sounded so impressive. Paul's saying to the Colossians, don't be gullible. Lofty language doesn't make it true. Years ago, a junior hire, he won first prize at the Idaho Falls Science Fair by showing how conditioned people are to believe anything with the label science on it. In the project, the young man urged people to sign a petition demanding strict controls on the chemical dihydrogen monoxide. And for numerous good reasons, it can cause excessive sweating and vomiting. It's a major component in acid rain. It can cause severe burns in its gaseous state. Accidental inhalation can kill you. It can cause erosion of the environment. It decreases effectiveness on automobile brakes. It's even found in cancerous tumors. Of course, people saw this and they were alarmed. 86% of the folks polled supported a ban on the chemical. Yet only one person realized that dihydrogen monoxide is really just another name for water. You know, sadly, some believers are just as naive when it comes to spiritual rhetoric. Just because a person uses spiritual-sounding verbiage and a lot of religious hype in their teaching or they pose complicated arguments doesn't mean they're right. I mean, complicated and convoluted isn't the same as deep. I've had people come to me and say, oh, his teaching, it's so deep. I listen to it and I think, man, he's just confused. 
you know, if it's not clearly taught in Scripture, then reject it, man. Run from it as fast as you can, no matter how good and impressive or holy it might sound. Paul says in verse 5, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. In other words, spiritual maturity never involves forsaking the basics. You were born again by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how you should walk as a Christian, just by faith. It's just that simple. He says, as you have received Christ, so walk in Him. By faith. Just keep having faith. You know, the heretics in Colossae, they had created a salvation based on passwords and rituals and secret initiations. Gnostic-style salvation came not by sticking with the truth about Jesus, but by seeking this deeper life, by sampling a wide array of spiritual experiences. One commentary describes Gnosticism as very mysterious, complicated, astrological, and snooty. For it created this spiritual elitism. You know, a few people made up the in crowd. They felt spiritually superior to everybody else. Hey, understand that's not real Christianity. That's not real faith. Real spirituality, real spiritual maturity builds on simple faith in Jesus. It doesn't create some spiritual elitism. It reminds us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You see, the deep things of God are not different things. They're just fuller and fresher and further applications of the truth by which we were saved in the beginning. Author Kent Hughes, he writes, To outgrow the basic truths of Christianity is to become post-Christian and pagan. Paul is saying, don't leave the faith. Just grow stronger in your faith. Then he says in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. You see, Gnostic paganism was cheating the believers out of a real relationship with God. It was steering them away from faith in Christ. Any philosophy that downplays or distracts us from Jesus is a tool of the devil to rip off our blessings. That's what it is. He says, for in Him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Did you know you are sufficient in Christ Jesus? All that we have, all that we need, He has. All that we desire, He desires for us. All that we want, He possesses. We're complete in Christ. Here Paul deals a death blow to this nonsense known as Gnosticism. Rather than sprinkling out the pleroma or the divine essence over all of the creation, God has placed all the eggs of revelation in one basket. He says, all of God is found in Christ. And if Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, then you have all access to everything God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's incredible. That's the gospel. That's the hope of glory. You never have to go outside Christ 
You are complete in Christ Jesus. Now, from verse 8 to the end of chapter 2, Paul is going to warn us of four dangers. Intellectualism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And Gnosticism was a blend of all four isms. It borrowed from Greek rationalism and Jewish legalism and Eastern mysticism and Roman asceticism. Gnosticism created a very, very strange morality. You see, there were two extremes in Gnosticism. Since matter was viewed as evil, there was one group that tried to abstain from any contact or as much contact as possible with the physical world or the material world. They would deprive themselves of natural relationships and basic necessities. They lived in austere form of self-denial. They, they ate a minimal diet. They stayed away from marriage. Things like that. For this group, physical pleasure was frowned upon. But there was another group within Gnosticism who believed that since matter was evil, and since we're material, then there's no way to escape it really. And so matter doesn't matter. Just do it, in other words. And so their theme was self-indulgence. They took the opposite approach. It didn't really matter what you did. What they did was they divorced spirituality from morality. These heretics said, search for God. Oh, do your chant in your meditation and your visualization, and then just go to bed with your neighbor. It doesn't matter. That's what they said. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? That's the kind of spirituality we see in the world today. It's an amoral kind of spirituality. Oh, you can get in touch with God, but it's not going to change how you live your life. It's a personalized, stylized kind of religion. These things really aren't, aren't new. In verse 11, Paul attacks the legalistic form of this, the more austere form of Gnosticism. He attacks the Jewish component to this Gnosticism. He says, in Him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. There were elements of this that were demanding people to be circumcised. Here Paul is saying that Christians don't get right with God through a surgical removal of a fold of flesh. Our circumcision, he says, is spiritual. God cuts off the sin nature from our lives. And he says this gets illustrated in baptism. He said, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying that baptism now symbolizes what circumcision once foreshadowed. A spiritual transformation takes place in a person who comes to Christ. God comes into our hearts. He cuts out that sin nature, that fold of flesh from our hearts. He, he gives us the inclination to love God and to love others. At our conversion, a part of us gets cut off as in circumcision. The old person is buried as in baptism. And now a new man rises up. This is what we do in a baptism. We rise up from the watery grave with new life. It's a symbol of what Christ has done in our hearts. And then verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, 
having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is what you need to understand. When a person was nailed to a cross, the Romans usually nailed a list of their crimes along with him to the cross. And here Paul says that the law was nailed to Jesus' cross. Jesus died to forgive our infractions under the law. But in doing so, he put an end to the law so we would never be guilty of breaking it again. He ended life under the law. You see, when Kathy and I got married, we didn't agree to a list of rules. We didn't agree to a a list of laws. I mean, she didn't sign a a note saying that she was always going to scratch my back every night before I went to bed. She didn't sign that. Nor did I sign anything that said, you know, that I was going to agree to take out the garbage, you know, every night. No, we took a vow. And we agreed to live our lives in a committed relationship with each other. We we agreed to commit to each other, not to a set of rules. We vowed to give ourselves to each other. To work out problems as they arose. Now, she does scratch my back at night. I think she plans to do it tonight. And I do take out the garbage. I definitely plan to do it tonight. But she and I do it not because it's a rule, but it's in our hearts to love each other, to do these things. And this is how God wants us to live. Not by the law, not by a set of rules, but by a committed love that we have for Him in a committed relationship with Him This is why on the cross he didn't just die to end our sins, but he died to end the law, our obligation under the law, so that we could live with him in a love relationship. I love the Phillips translation of this text. He he writes, He has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head. On the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Well, a lot happened on the cross of Christ. Verse 15 tells us having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Here's something else that happened at the cross the cross dealt the decisive blow in the battle against Satan in his stooges, it was dealt to him on the cross. Jesus stripped Satan of all his authority on the cross. Now, the only power that Satan has is that which we allow him. James tells us, you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. When a Roman general returned from battle, he led his defeated foe in tow. His crushed enemy would march in his parade. This made a spectacle out of him. It humiliated him. And this is what the cross has done to Satan. It's made a spectacle of him and all of his demons. It's ironic. Satan rebelled because he didn't want to glorify God. In the end, his defeat will do just that. And then verse 16 tells us, So let no one judge you in food or in drink 
or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Some Seventh-day Adventist groups teach that if you don't worship on Saturday, if you worship on Sunday, you know, you're damned to hell. You've taken the mark of the beast. Paul says, no way. Rules don't get you closer to God, and neither do rituals and traditions and certain holy days. Keeping one day holier than the next, it does nothing to enhance your status with God. We're as right with God as we can get in Christ Jesus. He is sufficient. Our sufficiency is in Christ. All the Jewish feasts and the Sabbaths were pictures of the work of Jesus and the rest that He offers us. The Jewish feasts were symbolic. The Sabbath was symbolic. Paul refers to them as a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Boy, when I come home after a long trip, I'm really homesick. And I really want to grab my wife and I want to hug her and I want to kiss her. I don't hug and kiss her shadow. That, that would not satisfy me a lot. I want to hug and kiss her, not just her shadow. I'm eager to see her. I want to hug the real thing. If I hug just her shadow, it only mean that I was a shady person. And the same is true with folks who get so caught up in observing certain days or celebrating certain feasts. They think that they're pleasing to God by how they live their calendar. They're focusing on the shadow. That's what they're doing. The feast days were meant to point us to Christ. Hug the Savior, man, not the symbol, not the shadow. He says, let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. You know, the Gnostics taught that the angels, they were part of these ripples of revelation that went out from God. And so they were into angels. Angels were more layers of emanation. But again, Paul sees this obsession with angels as a distraction. He says, all of God is found in Christ, not in angels. Stop worrying about angels. Paul says those who focus on angels are intruding into those things which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. I mean, he's just speculating. You know, we talked about this morning. Speculate, occupy yourself with revelation, not speculation. Vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increases from God. Hey, you want to grow? Hold on to Christ. Not the angels, not these other things. Not speculation. Hold on to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are complete in Christ. Sadly, it seems to me that some Christians, maybe most Christians, I hate to say it, are always, they're going off on tangents. This troubles me. For some people, just simple faith, just walking with Jesus, just walking in Christ as you were saved, I mean, just walking by faith, it's never enough. For some people, walking with Jesus is never enough. they got to have some little hobby horse on the side. Angels or fasting or some philosophy or this or that. Man, when is Jesus going to be enough? He should be. All of God is found in Christ. Don't forsake Jesus for anyone or anything else. 
And then verse 20 tells us, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Oh, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. Well, why do people concern themselves with these things? It's pride. People opt for legalism to show off their self-discipline. Oh, look at what I don't do. I don't do this. I don't do that. And, and they make themselves appear spiritual by the do's and the don'ts. It's been said, these folks fed the flesh by starving it. They fed the flesh by starving it. Legalism is nothing more than a way to inflate your own ego. But legalism is a step backwards from Christ. He says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. I mean, there's a lot of methods to appear spiritual without really being spiritual. You, you understand that. Religion is full of ways that you can show off without being more kind and more loving and more joyful. Never forget that you and I are complete in Christ. This is why it's not religion we need. It's more of Jesus. It's simple faith. As we have received the Lord Jesus, we should walk in Him.